I'm not a doctor, but I play one on TV. Kidding. Kind of. Sort of. No, definitely I'm kidding. Um, but I have read a lot of medical stories over the years, and I often find myself starting conversations with doctors who I run into in my own personal life with, you know, we had this story on the news last week. Um, crowd pleaser for sure. But one of my favorite new connections to emerge throughout the pandemic is Dr. John White. He is the CEO of WebMD, and we started doing talkbacks with him on news about COVID. And quickly, he became one of my favorite guests because he'll answer any question, which always scores big points with me. Now, over the last 20 years, Dr. White has gained a reputation for being as good a medical storyteller as he is a doctor. He spent 10 years at the Discovery Channel as the chief medical expert. He has traveled the world seeing how diseases affect people in different countries countries. And he's also worked in government. So he's worked on the other side too, as the director of professional affairs for the U.S. Food and Drug Administration. And now he's over at WebMD because he believes there is nothing wrong in diagnosing yourself as long as you get a second opinion from someone who actually went to medical school. Dr. White has written a new book. It is called Take Control of Your Cancer Risk. More than 1 million people get a cancer diagnosis every single year. And you might think, well, that's just the way my genes go. It's just bad luck. But that's not necessarily the case. There are actually a lot of things you can do to prevent a cancer diagnosis because only one in five of the, those diagnoses is because of your genes. Most of it has to do with our day-to-day. -day. It's how we live our life. It's the food we eat, what we don't eat, how we do or we don't move our body the amount of stress that we have, the amount of sleep that we get. So I'm this time to ask why Dr. White decided to write the book. And when he wrote this book too, is kind of impressive. Three things you can do today to lessen your chances of getting a cancer diagnosis. And we're going to start out the episode with a big reality check on where on earth are we with COVID? Are we there yet? Spoiler, not really. But we've got some some you know, outlook coming from Dr. White that I think is actually really promising. Dr. John White is my guest on Dying to Ask. I'm Deirdre Fitzpatrick and I've been anchoring morning news for more than 20 years. I thought I had seen and covered it all. Then came coronavirus, a pandemic, anchoring in my living room, homeschooling my kids, and all the things that come with COVID, including a vaccine. It was supposed to get us all back on track and living our best Instagrammable lives best lives-ish, the reality is we're still untangling what life looks like in a world post-pandemic. A lot of people describe a sense of never-ending overwhelm and anxiety. Is that just what life is like now? Or are there ways we can get back to living in the now? And this season of the Dying Desk podcast is asking how we can hit the restart and start living again. Dr. John White, welcome back to the Dying Desk podcast. Thanks for joining us again. Thanks for having me. It's always great to chat with you. Now, I want to throw this out early so because I did this the last podcast, too, so I don't get like criticized by some of our listeners. You said it's okay to call you John, yes? Absolutely. absolutely. Okay, so everybody, <laughs> Dr. White, <laughs> a.k.a. John, said it's okay to sure. call him John, so I, I probably will. Um, you know, it's so funny. I've had one of the nice advantages I've had in my job over the last 18 months is I've been able to talk to really smart people like you and Dr. Oz almost on a weekly basis about what's going on with COVID. Mm -hmm which is really cool. I mean, it's a really nice benefit. So the big question I have for you right now, which I get from a lot of our viewers is, how on earth are we still dealing with all this? Because I think a lot of us, including some of my friends in the medical community thought, surely by the fall of 21, right. we're gonna be farther past this. I mean, do you have that feeling too, even as a medical professional? No, I'm surprised too. I remember early on, we were talking about everything's gonna be over by Easter 2020. R remember that? Yeah. And now we're oh, almost yeah. 
<laughs> we're almost in 2022. It's going to be two years. I never would have imagined that. And I think in many ways, we got overconfident over the summer when we started to see cases decrease. We really didn't have the immunization rates that we needed. And then Delta came along and, and really wiped out the progress that we made. Much more infectious, got a lot of people infected, more misinformation grew mm -hmm. about the vaccines. We had a lot of trouble getting people vaccinated, certainly in parts of the country that, you know, just weren't going to, you know, really think that this was a real problem, despite the fact that ERs and in ICUs were being overwhelmed. So I think that created the challenge, even though we had a lot of momentum. You know, and a good example is we started off with the highest immunization rates early on in, you know, February, March, April of this year compared to the rest of the world. Mm -hmm. And now we're pretty far behind Europe and other countries. And it's not surprising that we've had a lot of bumps along the way. What are the the greatest thing, greatest lessons I'm getting out of all of this is the way misinformation spreads yeah. and specifically the medical misinformation. And I will have people who will, you know, email me something at work and say something and I'll write them back and go, that's flat out not true. And then I will provide them the proof of it. From the medical perspective, I mean, how how the medical community get around this from here on out? Because I don't see this getting better. I mean, history will tell you it gets worse. Mm -hmm. And, and we're seeing in the news lately how social media algorithms really promoted misinformation to folks that were already getting misinformation. They were just getting more and more infected. And, and I think, though, much of people's actions in, as it relates to misinformation is fear. Their fear about the consequences of the vaccine. They're fearful that maybe we don't have enough data about safety and efficacy. And I try to encourage a, a dialogue with patients. You know, just this week, a, a patient said to me that he's not getting vaccinated because thousands of doctors have been fired for not being vaccinated. And I said, it's not thousands of doctors. It's a lot of other healthcare workers. I said, but I can't think of any physicians that I know where I work that have not been vaccinated. And it kind of was like, hmm, you know, <laughs> that's, yeah. my, that's my concern. Now they're not going to listen to even when you, when you present the information. Another patient said to me, well, you know, millions of people have died from the vaccine and it's being covered up. And, you know, I really tried to get her to think, is that really possible? Wouldn't we have known about it? But I also pointed out, you know, how millions of people have died of COVID around the world who have not been vaccinated? And, and how do we account for that? So in many ways, it's addressing people's fear that then they're looking almost for this confirmatory bias, right? So they're looking for misinformation. They don't think it's misinformation, but they're looking for something that's gonna confirm, oh wait, vaccines aren't safe. Oh wait, you know, people are getting hurt from vaccines. And it's, a, it's really a challenge because anyone can go online, post a, blog or a tweet. And then the more provocative it is with the algorithms, the, the more engagement it gets and, and optimized. Yeah. So it's, it's a real challenge more so than I've ever seen 
you know, in the past. And it's really going to take a lot of work and a lot of time. But we also have to treat people with respect too. Too often we talk mm-hmm. down to people. We say, we try to imply that they're dumb if they don't support our position. And we really need to treat them with respect and, and give them time and not think just because I told you today the doctors are being vaccinated doesn't mean you're going to change it right now, right. you know, in this appointment. Maybe over time you'll do. And, and to think the bigger picture of it, it's really about the community in which we live, not just ourselves. Do you think it is changing maybe in real time the way people in the medical facility, in the medical world, specifically doctors, um, their relationship with patients? Because I would say, you know, my parents' relationship with their family doctor was extremely reverential, you know? <laughs> you know I don't think Bruner's it's quite that doctor, anymore. I mean, no, I, I mean, Dr. Yeah. Bruner was his name. Dr. Bruner's word was kind of gospel, you know, because yeah. he was the doctor. And it was interesting, like even generationally, you know, we would ask more questions. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I just wonder if like this entire experience has also changed the way we interact, because we, like you said, we can go to places like WebMD and pull yeah. a lot of that information, which doctors have said, you know, over the years, you know, we come in with our yeah. papers. I, yeah. I was, I was researching. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they don't come in with the papers Yeah, they used to print it up and what would we do? We kind of push right. it to the side. Now it's a lot more dialogue, but but I'm good with yeah. that. All my colleagues aren't. So I saw a patient the other day <laughs> with atypical chest pain and he came in and I was impressed. He said, I think I have, he actually said pericarditis. Um, and you know what? He didn't have pericarditis, but, but it wasn't a bad differential in terms of what he thought he might have. And, and I think if we treat people with respect, we encourage them to search out information, but then also to include medical professionals. There's a reason why we went to medical school and have that dialogue and don't be afraid to talk to me about what you think it might be. I often ask patients, well, what are you concerned about? What have you read? They don't know I work at WebMD. Uh, <laughs> and I encourage them to, to ask. Right. I think there's a little bit of a generational gap too. I still see in, in um, you know, senior patients, they are very you know, respectful. And we actually have excellent vaccination rates among the elderly. And that's good because they have been the people that are most vulnerable. And they also are the ones that typically respond to the medical profession. It's some of the younger population who, you know, everybody's an expert, (laughs) everybody's Dr. Google. (laughs) Uh, Right. (laughs) But I find, I'll tell you this though, I have to say this, the more serious their health condition is, they're more willing, they're taking the advice of the health professionals and yeah, coming in and yeah, saying, no, hey, I better, I better get that CT scan, you know, to, to find right. out and, and try this medication. So I think it has changed the dynamic. I think it's accelerated the dynamic. And I also think it's focused on self-care. Like we all have learned during the pandemic at the end of the day, it's not our job that defines us. It's our health. And if we don't have our health, we have nothing. And really now people are thinking about how do I lose weight? How do I reduce stress? Mm-hmm. How do I live a healthier life in, a, in a, a more rich life? And it's not about you know the amount of money you have, it's about the, your experiences. And I think people are coming around to that more than before. Yeah, I mean, you know, the, the, the phrase is health is wealth. And mm-hmm. it's true because COVID has affected all, regardless of their socioeconomic background, the racial makeup, all of it. So yeah. 
Um, yeah, thanks. I appreciate that discussion. I was just kind of curious to get your take. And I think, I think mm -hmm. you're right. It's good communication, but also going to good sources. <laughs> to get Absolutely. That, that is a critical and, piece. And, and that dude on Facebook is never a good source, just, you know, <laughs> That's right. across the board. He's never a good source. Okay. So during the pandemic, yeah. when everybody went into lockdown and it looked like it was going to drag on and it did drag on for a lot of times, I heard a lot of people saying, you know, now is the time I'm getting my six pack abs. I'm learning the language. I'm writing the book. Um, you actually wrote the book. <laughs> Most people did, did none of those I didn't write a book. Yes. Yes. <laughs> and we we joked ahead of time, like I, I wrote the book during the pandemic. I had time. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so the book is called Take Control of Your Cancer Risk. What what um, drew you to writing about that? You know, it's partly the, the topic of misinformation. What I saw is that patients think you get cancer either because of genetics or bad luck. And there's nothing you can do to reduce your cancer risk. And as doctors, we talk to patients about, this is what you need to do so you don't get diabetes. And we even created a new definition, you know, pre-diabetes, so you don't progress to diabetes. You know, we talk about how do you prevent a heart attack? And if you have a heart attack, we have a whole rehab program of what to do to prevent another heart attack. We call exercise cardio. I mean, it's the heart. But when it comes to cancer, we, we don't talk much about what you can do. We, we have a few screening tests. We can't even screen for most cancers. So I really wanted to refocus and help people understand there are things that you can do to reduce risk. Nothing is 100% preventable. You can do all the right things and still get cancer. But for many people, you can reduce your risk. That We wanna move from this idea that, I hope I don't get cancer, because that's really what people think uh, and want to how do you prevent cancer? Because with diabetes and heart disease, if I give you that diagnosis, you often have another chance and more chances. You know, most people don't die from their first heart attack. They, they don't. Cancer, that's not always the opportunity. A million new cases diagnosed every year, 600,000 people, 600,000 people still die every year from cancer. Wow. A major leading cause of death. So what can we do to help people know there are things you can do. Okay. So what are the things that are the um, most likely to prevent you from getting cancer? Yeah. You know, diet, what you eat and what you don't eat is a major component. I always say that it's as important what you include as well as what you exclude. And it really is about eating more fruits and vegetables. Most of us don't eat fruit most days of the week. I, I struggle and have to make a conscious effort to do it. We definitely don't eat enough fish. Um, most of us eat processed meats most days. We don't eat whole grains and, and low-fat dairy. We don't drink water. W what do most of us do? We eat a lot of red meat. We eat processed meats, those lunch meats, the salamis, the pastramis, um, the sugary beverages, You know, much more alcohol than we should. And the data consistently shows that it's the red meat, the processed meat, the refined grains, the cookies, the cakes, and alcohol that contribute to cancer risk. Some of it is due to obesity, but there's other elements of what's in these foods that are increasing your risk. Okay, so super layman's terms. Yeah. Why are the processed foods more likely to give you cancer? Or they have to? so many preservatives in them. They have so much salt to give them that taste as well as to give them their shelf life. When you think about it, all these man-made processed 
products cannot be healthier than what we see in terms of whole foods. And where we really see it in red meat and processed meat is in colon cancer. And when you think about it, you're digesting these foods. And as they're being broken down, are there toxins and other elements of the product or in the cooking process that's damaging the cells in your colon? At, at a simple level, that's what it comes down to. And it doesn't mean that you can never have a hamburger or a hot dog. I'm not saying that. What's important to remember, it's your daily choices over time that impact. It's no one day or one month. And, and I talk to patients, they'll be like, well, I don't really eat red meat. But then when I push them, they eat red meat four days a week. Like that is, that is mm-hmm. too often. Um, Interesting. And, and those are the changes. And, and people aren't used to hearing that. And, and they don't want to think that that has an element, but there's been very good studies time and time again about the relationship with food and cancer. So I've, I've watched, you know, those documentaries where they trace the, the rise of processed food in our country. And, you know, it was post-World War II and because our society was changing and it was faster and it had to do with food supply and moving things and getting the price down and making food last longer, making it taste better sure. so that it could stay on a shelf longer. I mean, a lot of that makes sense. Is that when we started to notice cancer rates changing in this country? I mean, is there a direct tie to that? Partly. I mean, we also have learned how to count better, just to be honest. I'm going to be honest. Okay. The other <laughs> That's element fair. is cancer, for the most part, is a disease of aging. So remember, it was after that time we started to live longer. People didn't die of mm-hmm. cancer as much, you know, the turn of the century because they were dying of infectious diseases primarily early on before immunizations, I might point out in, in some conditions. Right. And now as people- Funny how it all comes back to the same thing. (laughs) Yes, it is. As people have lived longer, now we're seeing the impact of these lifestyle changes over time that's resulting in cancer diagnoses. The reality is genetic cancers primarily occur at a younger age, 30s, 20s, in multiple generations, obviously, because there's genetic component as well as multiple cancers. That's a whole different- you know, aspect, but that's the minority of cancers. We're we're seeing it, you know, in your fifties and your sixties and a greater incidence because you've had time to have that cumulative impact of all these toxins that are having an impact on our body. I've always kind of thought that if you, if you can't pronounce it on the back of a box, you probably shouldn't need it, which might be an over, might be an overly simplified too. at it. You know, I and I will, and I will tell you that I say that having just had a couple of fig newtons before we started this. So and that's know, okay. A couple it's not fig that's not entirely how I live. A couple but, of fig but I do here and there are good. <laughs> I mean, I do get, I do understand, you know, the process part of it and trying to, you know, eat better and eat real food um, and exercise. Like, you know, every, it seems always seems to me that every health study, every weight loss study, every fitness study comes down to eat well and exercise. Like I can sum it up in one sentence at the end of those stories when they show yeah, up in our news. But, but it's also when you think about it, that the fig Newton, when you, when you, again, if you think about food as medicine, is that nutrient dense? Is that going to boost? Your no, immunity? I mean, you don't have to analyze no. it. Versus, you know, <laughs> you know, hummus. No, I was like walking by and Come it looked on, good and I ate it. Yeah. But yeah, the totally. other difference is it's not just food and exercise anymore. It's also the role of stress and sleep, but there's yes. a scientific basis to it. And the reason why, Deirdre, is that we've learned over the last few years that in some ways, cancer is a disease of inflammation. 
And if you think about it, if your knee is swollen or some other body point, body part is inflamed, it hurts and it's a problem. Well, our cells get inflamed under cancer. And basically you're causing mistakes in cell division and it's causing a mutation. So not, not making it overly complicated and creating cancer cell. Right. So the more inflammation you have in your body, the more your risk is of cancer. And we know that at a cellular level, stress causes cancer. And if you were stressed, you know, right now, and, and you have that daily stress where you can, you know, feel your heart racing, your, your bowel movements are always, you know, not working well for you, your stomach hurts. How do you think that's impacting your body at a cellular level? And, and we've learned that over time, even with sleep deprivation, we learned about the role of cortisol and melatonin. And we see increase in hormone-based cancers, prostate cancer, breast cancer, colon cancer in people that are shift workers. And that's something that I had not known before writing the book, people that work these unusual hours and don't get good sleep. And some countries have actually reimbursed women who were shift workers who got breast cancer. So if you say, Seriously? well, sleep stop, absolutely. Yes. What? Yes. <laughs> I'll send you, I'll send you it. Yeah. You realize I've done this now for more than 20 years. So you're, you're hitting a lot of nerves here. <laughs> <laughs> but the, the whole point is if wow. you're working these unusual hours, your whole sleep cycle is messed up, but your hormones are also messed up in terms of cortisol, melatonin, and right. there's a few other ones. So it's not surprising that the data have been pretty now, consistent. I mean, I, I've worked those kind of hours. So obviously, you know, I hit those criteria, but when you talk about just living with um, underlying stress, you're really talking about most of America over the last 18 months. Cause you had people mm -hmm. who've been Absolutely. homeschooling and working from home and like all the things, you know, mm -hmm. trying not to get COVID, all yeah. of it is very stressful. And it's interesting. I talk to a lot of people these days who, you know, now that their kids are going back to school, but we're still living pandemic life. Talk about this realization that the light has come on of how stressed they actually are, because I think they've been on go mode for so long mm -hmm. where they didn't have the luxury of sitting back and saying, wow, right. this is stressful. And now they're starting to really feel it, which I assume is part of this whole great resignation movement that you, I feel like you're reading about everywhere where people are making these major lifestyle choices. Are all these things kind of, do you think from a health perspective tied in? I, I think they're related because I, when you, see people are resigning. It's often people that are unhappy with their jobs, they either have a toxic boss, which that causes stress on a daily basis. They don't like the commute, mm -hmm. which is causing a big stress on their life. And what they're saying, Deirdre, is I'm going to put my health first. My health is more important. And that's a powerful statement because I don't think people think about that. They think of absorbing wealth, as, as we talked about, or just being able mm -hmm. to survive as well. You, you have to pay bills. So, you know, what's the job? And now I think folks are thinking, let me take a little more time and, and find a role that I'm either going to be more fulfilled in, or is going to cause less stress. And that's going to impact their overall health. Right. And I think that's what I really enjoy about your book is that it's very empowering to take control of your health, whether it is getting a little bit more sleep, because everybody feels better yep. when you sleep more, trying to look for those ways to reduce your stress. Um, or making those lifestyle choices in what you eat and you don't eat that can ultimately lower your risk of getting something like cancer. So we've talked about, you know, the crappy food that we're eating. What mm -hmm. are some good things that people should really be more open to? What should we be eating more of these days? Yeah. You know, I've learned a lot more about how do I incorporate 
fruit at least, you know, two meals a day or as a snack. So it's, it's berries, it's blueberries, it's grapes are a great way. You mentioned Dr. Oz. I did a segment with Dr. Oz about roasting these grapes, you know, in the oven. You roasted grapes? I did. Really? I did. And we did it uh, <laughs> for the show. And you'd be surprised at how you have to cut them in half first. Uh, you'd be surprised. Okay. I'm, sure he ha- uh, I'm sure he had some Turkish recipe that he tossed in there. Right. How tasty <laughs> they can be or salsa. But here's the great thing. There's so many ways to create healthy food options, but it's it, obviously it's the ingredients. So it's the fruits, you know, and vegetables, we have so many options. And, and, and I'll see a lot of patients that'll be like, I don't like spinach. I don't like lettuce. I don't like kale. <laughs> and I'm trying, but that's where you add, you know, the herbs and spices. I'm a big proponent of low fat yogurt, uh, getting the um, ones that are plain and then adding those berries mm-hmm. in there, you know, instead yeah. of eating cookies, uh, in candy, you know, a handful of nuts goes a long way. It has those healthy fats in there and people might be like, Oh, it has a lot of calories. It does have some calories, but if you eat a handful, it can help you feel full and then you'll Mm -hmm. eat less, you know, the rest of the day, there's lots of data to support the role of nuts. We don't think about that, but it's also seeds. You know, we, we could be having, you know, pumpkin seeds and other type of seeds at this time of year. And then it's, you know, thinking about replacing all those sugary beverages that we drink. Yeah. The, the ice That's a killer, tea, I think, for people. The lemonades. It's a lot of calories and people don't think about it that way in the sodas and really trying water or good data to support coffee, good data to support yeah. tea. Is lo- no, I'm serious. <laughs> as as I know, I know. Three, three cups a day, uh, which is probably reasonable and it's not venti cups. Uh, but, but those are the types of things that you want to, start trying. And, you know, as you know, I have young kids, I won't let my kids decide after one or two times, they don't like something, but we're so quick as we get older. Mm, I, I, don't, I don't like fish. I don't like, you know, bananas. I don't like, you know, this or that. And we really have to right. keep at it and try different things. I made these, um, I was going to say great cookies, but I like them. I just, <laughs> my children didn't <laughs> like them. They were just these uh, cookies with a banana mash. So I smashed these like three bananas. I added in some cinnamon because I'm into spices. Now I added, uh, like a a cup and a half of oatmeal. I squished them all together. And then, you know, when you take them right out of the oven, they actually are very tasty because there's that banana, you know, that's mashed. What are the calories in this? There's almost no sugar. Now, granted, I, I I actually did it at a birthday. (laughs) A birthday party <laughs> where my kids, it was outside. So there were a lot of people and the kids were yeah. like, these don't look like cookies. <laughs> <laughs> They're magic cookies. <laughs> but they've come around to like them, my kids. That's good. It's better having the There are a lot of spices that have a lot of therapeutic benefits. I mean, like I've heard a lot about garlic over the years. Turmeric seems to be having like Absolutely. a moment, as they say. Do they, are they making you healthier or are they doing something internally that we don't know about? Why, why are spices so important? A component to a healthy diet, because usually you're doing it to something that you're making. So that that's step number one, as opposed to you're not putting it in, you know, your uh, fast food hamburger on, on the top. So there, there's that element. But I think when you use spices over time, there are those medicinal aspects uh, to it. You know, I don't think we're using enough to change our cellular level, but I think it, it helps in an overall 
you know, cancer prevention strategy. You know, there's not one element that's going to prevent you from getting cancer. You know, you do this one thing. It's really kind of that constellation, that, you know, series of activities that you're going to do to get healthier that are going to reduce your cancer risk. And I think adding spices and herbs is one of those elements. And then fish as well. You know, we've heard about fish, the, you know, omegas and fish being so good for brain health, especially. Yeah. Biggest change. Most people either they're afraid to do it. They don't know what type and everyone, whenever I say fish, people are always like, oh, you know, you have to be concerned about mercury. (laughs) Like that's the immediate excuse. And I'm like, okay, first of all, you're not eating any fish. So if you do it once a week, <laughs> it's not going to have a, a big impact. And the, and the most fish that people like salmon or, or flounder or tilapia do, do not have, they're not the bottom uh, feeders. They're not, people aren't having tuna every week or, or what right. have you. So it, it, we could make a lot of changes right then. And the challenge is people want that fast solution. So it'll be like, Hey, what about a fish supplement? And I'll be like, well, what about fish (laughs) And, and, and trying it? So it takes a little bit of work. And I've learned a lot of ways to cook fish and I've used different services that, you know, uh, flash freeze it or whatever it's called and they ship Mm -hmm. it to you. And I thought, well, that's kind of good because I don't have to go out and get it, but I have it available and I can try different ones. And it's great because as I said before, it's low in calories, it's rich in nutrients, and it's always going to be a good choice. Yeah. You know, it's funny. Uh, my kids are, I'm knock on wood. My kids have always been really good eaters. So mm-hmm. I, I do feel grateful for that, but you know, salmon was never a hard sell with them because, you know, a little bit of olive oil and everything tastes kind of good, you know, yeah. and while well, olive oil is, yeah, I think still on the good list. Yeah. So. yeah, it is. And I'll be honest, I'm not a big salmon fan. My wife isn't either, but you know, we love mahi mahi tacos. We've done, you know, Chilean sea bass and, you know, we've tried other things. We like tuna um, and it takes, you know, different trials. And that's where you add all those spices and herbs to yeah. kind of make it more interesting. And then, you know, a side dish or something. Well, I want people to read the book, but, but give us like, a, give us a prescription, give us three things that we can do now that we could change right. today that would lessen our risk of ending up in a doctor's right. office and getting that dreaded cancer diagnosis. Well, it is one as we've been talking about substitute one or two meat dishes per week with fish. That's going to make big progress. The second one is to aim for eight hours of sleep a night. And I have a bunch of strategies in the book to try to get there. Most of us don't get quality restful sleep. So that is a big change that over time is going to have a big impact. And then the third is addressing your daily stress, right? We, we don't think an about the role of stress, but as we just talked about the role of inflammation. So one tip that I've been using and there's science to support it is a gratitude journal where you write down every day, just one thing that you're grateful for. And you'd be surprised how it changes your mood. You have to do it every day. You have to Mm -hmm. think about what you're grateful for. And there's been data in terms of PET scannings that shows how it can rewire the brain and change your thoughts, if you really commit to doing it every day. You know, it's about learning forgiveness. You know, I was talking to someone the other day, I'm like, why are people still mad about something that happened at a wedding 20 years ago? <laughs> I'm not joking about this. The person said to me, but what about if you were right? I'm like, you've got, you've got, you've got to let it go. 
I know. <laughs> and it's all these yes. things that people are mad about. They're mad about a lot of things during yeah. the COVID pandemic. And I get it, but you're not going to change people. And you got to recognize that you can only control you. So if you eat more fish, if you aim for eight hours of sleep at night and figure out what those strategies are to get good sleep and work on reducing your stress over time, because that's what it's about over time, not just today, you're going to reduce your risk of cancer and you're, you're going to make yourself healthier overall. We're being less reactive to um, life. Yeah, <laughs> that's hard to do for a lot of people. That's probably hard. It's to me. Very to hard. Yeah. You know, and I found over, over the pandemic, I got a lot less reactive to certain things. Like the big things that got canceled. I was like, eh, whatever. But it, yeah. it is funny how every once in a while, very little things can set you off. Like the smallest of things yeah. can really set you off. No. And that's because we, you know, we have that chronic stress. I think it's also, um, I'd be curious to your thought. I think when you first you know, have children, especially your second child, you be, things bother you. It's <laughs> not like just talking oh about food that falls on the floor, but you know, things don't work out as yeah, perfectly as, as you like, you know, the schedule didn't quite work out today as you would have liked. It's kind of like, oh, okay. Um, mm -hmm. So it kind of changes you a it's bit. It's so it, true, you're isn't less, it? less, you know, focused on things have to be perfect. And I think what we're going to see during COVID, things don't have to go exactly the way that you had envisioned and it's going to be okay. My 12-year-old was asking me the other day, what was my first word? I'm like, I, yeah. what? Yeah. I say daddy. So I, just, I looked at, I, <laughs> I that's, just, John, that's exactly, I looked at him, I said, dad. <laughs> just was like, <laughs> idea. I don't even yeah. remember yesterday, let alone 12 years ago. Dad, it was dad. That's I right. said it with conviction. He was happy about it. Yeah. We changed the subject to move on. We probably helps. had fig news. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I love hey, that. Thank you so much. Sorry. I know. Thank you so much for joining and um, congrats on getting the book done. I think that's thank really you. impressive that you actually, that you actually sat down and created something during the pandemic and lockdown is super impressive. The book is called Take Control of Your Cancer Risk. It is available and I'm assuming all the normal book places. Yes, it is. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Google it. You will find it in uh, your local bookstore. And then of course, on all the online sites as well. And what are some good ways for, to keep up with you and WebMD? Sure. You can follow me on all social, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook. It's at Dr. John White. Uh, and then clearly at webmd.com. All right. Thank you for joining. I hope you and the family continue doing well. Thanks for having me. Big thanks to Dr. John White for joining us back on the Dying Dash podcast today. And uh, his Instagram is really kind of fun to follow. You can follow him at Dr. John White. And he posts a lot of behind the scenes from his work at WebMD and, you know, the family stuff and everything too. But uh, it is interesting to see kind of the behind the scenes of his job. So I encourage you to go check him out. He's definitely worth a follow. Thanks to everybody who has given a rating or review to the podcast on whatever podcast platform that you are listening to us on. It's the quickest way that we grow the show. And we're approaching about 300 ratings rating and reviews on Apple Podcasts, which is kind of a big deal. So thank you to everyone who takes a second and hits five stars or leaves a few comments about what they took away from the show. You can also share the show on your favorite social media by just taking a screen grab of the episode right now, maybe putting it in your Instagram stories. Thank you for listening today. If you have something you want to let me know about, reach out to me in messages on Instagram at runreadsip. I do read all those messages and I'll get back to you as fast as I can. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time on the Dying Desk Podcast.